Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, we want to welcome everyone into a special episode today at the Determined Truth Podcast. Um, Vinny is not going to be able to be with us today. As I mentioned to our guest, he's got a real job, so it's hard to schedule three, three schedules. But we have a wonderful guest speaker here with Mark Charles. We're going to invite him to talk with us today. And Vinny wasn't able to make it. So we have been talking about the book of Acts. And today we've, we're going to look at what happens when we use missions to justify injustices. And we're going to talk to Mark Charles. Mark is a dynamic and thought-provoking public speaker, a writer and consultant, the son of, of an American woman of Dutch heritage, and a, a Navajo man. He teaches with insight into the complexities of American history regarding race, culture, and faith in order to help forge a path of healing and conciliation for the nation. He's one of the leading authorities in the 15th century's doctrine of discovery and its influence in U.S. history and its intersection with the modern-day society. Mark co-authored, along with Soon Chan Ra, the new book entitled Unsettling Truths, the Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery in 2019. Mark ran as an independent candidate for the United States presidency in 2020 election. And Mark, I want to thank you for being here with us today. Well, thank you, Rob. Uh, please allow me to introduce myself more traditionally. So, sure. yate, Mark Charles Inishia, Tsinbeke Dene Inishle, Dr. Higlini Bashishin, Tsinbeke Dene Dashichero Torochini Dashanella. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans or make sure Lunil is a people and our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage. And that's why I say loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. Mm. My second clan, my father's mother is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbeke Dene. And my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you today from what's now called Washington, D.C. I moved here from the Navajo Nation about seven years ago with my family. And this area where I now live is the traditional lands of the Piscataway. The Piscataway are the nation that were living here and hunting here farming here and fishing here, raising their families here and burying their dead here long before Columbus got lost at sea. And they're still here. Mm -hmm. So I want to acknowledge the Piscataway as the host people of these lands. I want to publicly thank them for their stewardship of these lands. And I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. And that's my, my first question, Mark. And I, this is going to probably be a really stupid question on my part. And I'm probably going to have to stick my foot in my mouth because I just don't understand. And I'm hoping, I'm sure you can help me because I think you actually addressed this in the book. And that is, I've been to a number of conferences and other places. And by the way, I, I live in Mesa, Arizona, which is the land Akamel O'Odham, the Upper Pima people and the Hohakamkam land. So I want to recognize the fact that I'm in Mesa and well, where I am. And I know Apache Junction is not far away, so I'm sure there's a number of Apache tribes where I'm at as well. But I've attended these conferences and other places where people will come up and say, I want to thank the indigenous peoples, and they, they name the tribes, uh, for letting us use their land and for, for, for allowing us to be on. And I'm thinking, but that's not really the narrative. I mean, they didn't let us use this land. I mean, we took it from them, and we built hotels on it, and, and the hotels is a conference room, and that's where we're having this, this conference right now. It just doesn't sit right with me. Can you help me understand why that is a not just a proper procedure and protocol, yeah. but appropriate? Well, I would say 
using language of letting us use the land is not appropriate language okay. because that's, again, that's not the history. Um, doing a land acknowledgement and stating that these lands are not who the United States claims they are. That's important because it's acknowledging that there's a history to these lands that predate Christopher Columbus. Okay. And so we have so much about society that tells us, whether it's our history books, whether it's um, just the world we live in, that tells us, yeah, these lands were discovered and these lands were built up by Western European people and established in the Americas and so on and so forth. And that's not true, right? These mm -hmm. lands weren't discovered. There were already people living here. In fact, the first sentence of yes, chapter one of it. our book says, yeah. you cannot discover lands already inhabited. Right. And so acknowledging that and then acknowledging, yeah, technically these lands were ethnically cleansed mm -hmm. and colonized. And then at least acknowledging the people who live there. Okay. And stating the truth about the land is very important. I do it pretty much everywhere I go around the country. And it's something that, A, it, it, it's a very good way to kind of put a foundation on the conversation of this mm -hmm. is where we're starting from. Right. And then we can kind of move out of that in a much more humble manner than instead of just not acknowledging it at all or even acknowledging the myth that exists instead of the actual history. Okay. All right. So I remember... I was right then to feel uncomfortable when I said, thank you for letting us use your lands. I'm like, they're not, they're not letting us use it. So, yeah. When I was at the CCDA conference and we, we, I was in charge, I was working, this was in Tennessee and we were doing a land acknowledgement and Charles Robinson was doing our land acknowledgement. And I invited him up at the beginning of the conference to acknowledge his people's land that we were on that day. And I told him before he took the stage, I said, you can say whatever you want. You can say welcome. You can say, get the hell out. Whatever You can say whatever you want to say. Yeah. This is your land. Yeah. And, and I very, just very bluntly gave him the freedom to say whatever he wanted to say. And he very graciously mm -hmm. welcomed the conference to that land. Okay. I've done that other places where I speak too, where I'll ask if anyone from the land that I mentioned that we're on is in the room. And usually if they're in the room, I'll either have them stand up and honor them or sometimes I'll just say, please feel free to address the gathering here and mm -hmm. say something that you'd like to say. Wow, interesting. So in the book, I, I'm not sure how much is in the book or how much is just my research before you, you kind of give your story a little bit and how you, you come from a mixed background. But at some point, I think in your adult life, after you already married, you went to the Navajo lands from where you came from and lived there for what, a dozen years? Yeah. So our family, I was born, I always say, call it a ghetto, a Dutch ghetto just mm -hmm. off the Navajo Nation. And so the, the mission compound I was born on was built by the Christian Form Church of North America, who mm -hmm. established an Indian mission in the early 1900s, like 1903, 1904, I think. And they started a, a school, they started, or they started a hospital, a church, and a boarding school. Hmm. This is the same boarding schools we hear about around the country, where the okay. goal was to kill the Indian to save the man. Hmm. And that's how Rehoboth was started. Um, this is now 1903, 1904, you know, so over 100 years ago. And when I was born, the hospital, the school, and the and the church were still there, but they were kind of moving in separate directions. And uh, the school was becoming a day school. 
So it was actually transitioning from being a boarding school to a day school. And even just out of interest, I mean, they the, the Christian from church called their mission Rehoboth, right? Rehoboth, this is taken from the book of Genesis that says the Lord has given us room and we shall flourish in the land. Now, if you read chapters 9 and 10 of mm-hmm. Selling Truths, you'll learn that God did not give that land to these Dutch missionaries, these Dutch American missionaries. That land was literally, the very land where Rehoboth sits was literally ethnically cleansed by none other than Abraham Lincoln. Mm. And the the native nations, the Navajo Nation and the Mescalero Apache from uh, the surrounding area, we were ethnically cleansed from that land, moved down to what could only be called a death camp. Mm-hmm. And we were in prison there where a quarter of our people died when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And so for the Christian Reformed Church to call their land, their mission Rehoboth, is heresy, right? God did not give them that land. Their government stole it and ethnically cleansed it, and then they bought it a few decades later. And so this is where I grew up in that area, this Dutch ghetto just off of the Navajo Nation. And so when they stole the land, And then they built Route 66 and the railroad that goes right through there, through Albuquerque, New Mexico, Grants, New Mexico, Gallatin, New Mexico, and out to Flagstaff, Arizona, all that area. So that was native Navajo land that was stolen from us so that when we were moved down to Bosque Redondo, then the government claimed that land. And that's where they eventually built both Route 66 as well as uh, the railroad through there. And then when we signed a treaty with them in in 1868, they moved us back to a much smaller portion of our land north of that railway, Mm. of of what's now the railway. And so that's what became the Navajo Nation today. And so when I was, uh, when I was, after I got married and my wife and I were pastoring, I was pastoring a church in Denver, Colorado called the Christian Indian Center. And I was wrestling with what it meant to be Navajo and be Christian. And I was engaging with indigenous Christians from all over the world who are in the very real process of decolonizing their faith. Mm -hmm. Um, We decided, yeah, we should probably move back to the Navajo Nation and live on our reservation because I had always lived just off of it. And so we moved back there. This is the early 2000s. And for three years, we lived in a very remote section of our reservation. We were six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road. We lived in a community that had no running water, no electricity. Mm. And we lived there for three years. And then we moved into Fort Defiance, which is in another part of the reservation, not quite as far off the grid, still on a dirt road. But we lived there for about eight years. And that's where we were living when we moved to Washington, D.C. in 2015. What kind of impact did that have on you as a person, on your convictions, beliefs, and things of that nature, that time there on that land? Yeah, I, it was, that was a very formative period for both me as a person, as well as for my faith. Mm. Um, I started blogging when we lived there. I, I have a blog. It's not on my current website. My web, current website, which is Wireless Hogan, has my more recent blog. My original blog, which is wirelesshogan.blogspot.com. If you go back and read through that blog historically, going back Mm -hmm. to the early 2000s, you will see as I'm grappling with these understandings of what does it mean to live there? 
you know, when we moved there from Denver, Colorado, right? I, we were prepared to live off the grid. We knew the community we were moving into didn't have running water and electricity. We knew we were going to have to cook over a campfire or a camp stove. We knew that we'd have to use the outhouse and haul our water. We were prepared to live off the grid. But what caught us by surprise was how absolutely isolated the reservation is. One of the first things we learned is that really the only non-Native people you see when you're living on an Indian reservation are people who come to take your picture, are people who come to give you charity. Mm -hmm. Almost no one comes for the purpose of actually building a relationship with you. And as we were living there, experiencing this isolation, I, I describe it as it felt like we dropped off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. In fact, I could count on one hand the, the number of non-native outside my family people who came to visit us on that reservation those first few years we lived there. I could count on one hand mm-hmm. the number of non-natives who came. And so it felt like we dropped off the face of the earth. And we were able to kind of observe our nation, the church, even ourselves from this completely isolated vantage point. The same time I'm seeing the historical trauma, the generational brokenness of our people, whether it was the the addiction or the, 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 the gangs or the broken families that was existent, existing in our reservation, I'm wrestling with that. I'm learning more about the history and I can literally feel myself becoming more and more both angry and insecure. Mm. And I'm wrestling with my non-native friends, right? I'm talking to them on the phone, trying to figure out what's going on. How do I feel about this? How do I process through all these things? And every time the subject comes up with the reservation, I can feel kind of this anger swelling up inside me. And soon I have to hang up the phone so I don't start yelling at my friends. So I learned how to speak about it, tempering myself. Mm. I learned how to talk about it like I read it in a newspaper, in a third person mentality. And when I do that, I find I can engage in conversation longer. But then I notice my friends start dropping out Mm. because they're feeling ashamed or they're feeling, you know, uncomfortable. And so we don't know how to talk about it. Mm. And one of the very early lessons I learned This was those first few years actually living in the Hogan. And I didn't know how to bring this conversation to the forefront in a way that both allowed me to honestly articulate how I was feeling, as well as keep my non-native relationships engaged. Mm -hmm. And I was writing a letter to some of my friends. It was probably the 10th time trying to get them to understand how it felt to live on an Indian reservation in the middle of our country. And in this letter, I said, it feels like our Navajo nation, our reservation is, our Navajo people is this old grandmother who has a very large and a very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they violently locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture, they're eating our food, they're having a party inside our house. Mm-hmm. Now they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later. We're tired, we're old, we're weak, we're sick, so we can't or we don't come out. Mm-hmm. But the thing that hurts us the most, what causes us the most pain is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, 
sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand Mm -hmm. and simply says, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for letting us be in your house. Mm -hmm. I wrote that and I'm like, that's it. That's how I'm feeling. I started to express that both to members of my community as well as to outsiders. Members of my community, someone heard me say that and they said, I've lived here all my life and I've struggled to articulate how it feels. And I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I would share this with outsiders from the reservation, non-native people. And instead of getting defensive and justifying themselves, they would look at me and ask, what does it look like to say thank you to the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island? Mm. How does my family, how does my church, how Mm. does my city, how does my state, how does my country acknowledge the host peoples of the land? So now we're having an entirely different conversation. Now, instead of talking about victim versus oppressor, we're talking about what I think is the true the, the true problem that we're facing, which is we have this misappropriation of roles. We have these mostly white, undocumented immigrants who've been pouring over these borders since 1492, mm. stealing our lands, doing everything they've been doing and acting like they own the place. Mm. And we have indigenous peoples who have been pushed aside to the very margins of our own lands and we're being treated like unwanted guests in someone else's house. Hmm. And we have to reverse those roles. Right. And both sides are actually trying to reverse those roles, right? They, they, that's what's necessary, but we're never able to frame the conversation correctly. And so that was really one of the first insights. That metaphor, that analogy of this grandmother in the house is one of the first tools I began using to help engage not only the church, but Americans in this conversation about what do we do regarding our nation's history, especially in reference to indigenous peoples. Can I push back a little bit on the, on the analogy or the, the metaphor by saying, but shouldn't we go upstairs and sit next to the grandmother and say, I'm sorry? I mean, again, they didn't let us take their home we we stole it from her see what's ironic about this right is this is the literally the very same period early 2000s where in 2009 december 19 2009 congress passes and president obama signs house resolution 3326 which is the department of defense appropriations act of 2010 It's a 67 page bill laying out the appropriations for the DOD for 2010. Page 45, subsection 8113 is titled An Apology to Native Peoples of the United States. Mm -hmm. What follows is a seven bullet point apology. Mentions no specific tribe, no specific treaty and no specific injustice. It says you had some nice lands. Our citizens didn't take it very politely. Let's now just call it all of our lands Mm. and we'll steward it together. And then it ends with a disclaimer saying nothing in here is legally binding. So, right. So while I'm talking about this metaphor of a grandmother in a house, the nation is literally signing because that apology, Mm -hmm. while it was passed and signed, it was never publicly 
reference. Right. It was never read. It was never acknowledged. It was stuffed into a drawer and no one ever spoke about it again. And so my response to, to what you were saying is absolutely the nation needs to apologize. Okay. The problem is the nation has no clue what it's apologizing right. for and is nowhere near even close to being ready to apologize. Okay. And so the reason I ask for gratitude, again, I'm trying to reverse these roles. So okay, well, okay. you might say, well, it's too easy to say thank you. It is pretty easy. But if you acknowledge, if you're really honest about yeah. expressing that gratitude, what you're acknowledging is I shouldn't be here. Right. I'm on land where I, I don't, I don't even have a treaty to be on these lands. Right. And so it actually takes more, I think, to sincerely say thank you. Okay. And again, our nation is nowhere near ready, even today, you know, over a decade later nowhere near ready to begin to apologize for what it doesn't even know what it's done. Right. Let's go down that path first, because I think there's so many different conversations I want to have with you. This is incredible. And from my heart to yours, I'm sorry. From my heart to yours, um, I wish I knew more. And, and I want you to help me understand. And I want you to help me go the next step and saying, okay, what do we do now? I mean, cause saying, I'm sorry, that's okay. That's easy too. And we're done conversations over with and we go our own ways, but, what do we do next and things of that nature also. But let's talk about what did we do? Because I don't, as I read your book and I read some of the stories in there and I'm thinking, okay, this is not the history that I was told. And I'm pretty certain that this is not the history that most Americans have been told because I have a public school education and a bachelor's degree from Cal State Hayward in history. And this is not the history that I was told. So let's talk a little bit more about that. And so essentially some of the, some of the treaties that were signed, for example, were just simply inequitable, weren't they? So <laughs> I just gave a, a lecture literally um, a month ago, early June. I gave a lecture at the Indigenous Peoples, the Museum of Indigenous Peoples in Prescott, Arizona. Hmm. And they, they were opening a new exhibit um, about the broken treaties. So there's over 400, I believe, treaties signed by the U.S. government and Native nations. And according to the Smithsonian, every one of them has been broken. Wow. And so they asked me to speak about the doctrine of discovery and our nation's legacy of broken promises. Now, I have a Patreon site, and on my Patreon site this month in June, I'm actually posting that a version of that lecture mm. onto my Patreon site. So my subscribe, because that okay. the lecture I gave in, in Arizona wasn't um, streamed online. And so they can't view it, but I'm, I'm re-giving that lecture on my Patreon site. So it will be archived there. So I've just been going over this material from the original lecture, as well as preparing for this new lecture I'm going to give later this week or next week. And we, when you think about that, you have to ask, what is it about our nation that believes it can break trees without consequence. And we don't just see this with native nations, right? We see this very much in what happened with um, Iran, mm. where the Obama administration, now they were very careful not to call it a treaty because they couldn't get the, the support of Congress, but they, they, this agreement, this nuclear agreement that they were able to negotiate with Iran 
that the Obama administration was working on. Congress, the Republicans especially, were very, very opposed to it. Israel was very opposed to it, and there was a lot of controversy around it. And But they got it signed, they got it agreed to, and it became kind of established. And then the Trump administration pulled out of it. And they said, yeah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna be a part of this anymore. And now the Biden administration is trying to, to re-enter back into this agreement. Now, what's fascinating, especially if you watch the negotiations today between the Biden administration and Iran, which is we are pretty adamant that in other, for this agreement to move forward, Iran has to become fully compliant into the terms of the treaty. And we have to recognize that we're talking about a nuclear treaty, right? Mm -hmm. Who gets to and who doesn't get to have nuclear weapons. And it's very ironic that the nation that is pushing this agenda the strongest is the only nation that's ever used nuclear weapons on civilians. Right. Yep. And so, first of all, that takes an incredible amount of arrogance to be Mm -hmm. the only nations who've ever deployed these weapons to now say we're going to control who gets to have them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we're trying to di- we're trying to dictate the terms of this re-entering into this negotiation, like we have some sort of moral high ground, and mm-hmm. we're the ones who pulled out of it, right? What gives us the right to do that? Right. If you read the Constitution, the Constitution states that treaties are the supreme law of the land. When I was running for for president as an independent in 2020. Um, in the summer of 2020, there was a Supreme Court case that came out. It was McGirt versus the state of Oklahoma. And it was a pretty landmark case because it was dealing with treaties, um, modern day treaties in the state of Oklahoma. Now, most people aren't aware of this, but according to, to federal law, when a Native American commits a crime against another Native American on reservation land, the jurisdiction, the judicial jurisdiction for that crime falls on the federal government. So those cases are tried in federal court. So it's like an, it's like occupation. So McGirt, a native man committed a crime in Tulsa, Oklahoma against another native American. And he was tried in the state court of Oklahoma. And he was found guilty and there's really no debate whether he was guilty or not. It's it pretty clear he was guilty, but he appealed because he said to the hmm. state, you tried me in the wrong court. Uh-huh. According to treaty, Tulsa is a part of a reservation and you should have tried me in federal court. Again, like you said, this is like occupation, even the fact that that's where jurisdiction lies. But anyway, that, that's another debate we can have. <laughs> And so this case was was actually, as it went through the system and it got appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, it gathered a lot of interest among Indian country and the Native Americans. And and when the case, the opinion came out in the summer of 2020, there was a lot of excitement because the Supreme Court ruled in favor of McGirt. It ruled against Oklahoma. (laughs) And it stated, that for judicial purposes, um, the eastern half of Oklahoma was reservation land, which meant not only did McGirt need to be retried, but there are other countless numbers of cases that now have to be retried because as Oklahoma stated in their, in their court case, 
they had never treated Tulsa like it was a reservation. Mm. And they said the courts had already agreed with them that it wasn't a reservation. And so in the opinion, which was written by Neil Gorsuch, who was actually probably one of the better minds on the Supreme Court regarding Native American law. Okay. He, he tried, he served in Colorado for a number of years and had dealt with a lot of Indian law cases. And so he wrote the opinion and he basically said that neither the state of Oklahoma nor the courts have the right to disestablish reservation lands. Hmm. So because of that, Tulsa was, again, for judicial purposes, still a reservation, part of a reservation. Hmm. Now, if you read the, the entire, because when that opinion came out, people saw that first ruling and they saw that they ruled in favor of McGirt and everyone started to celebrate. I have no trust for the Supreme Court and I have TED Talks to prove it, hmm. or TEDx Talks to prove it. But anyway, so um, I, uh, I read the entire opinion. And when you read the entire opinion, of McGirt versus Oklahoma, Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion, is very clear. I'm going to read part of this ruling to you, this opinion to you. It says, to determine whether a tribe continues to hold a reservation, there is only one place we may look, the acts of Congress. Wow. This court long ago held that the legislature wields significant constitutional authority when it comes to tribal relations, possessing even the authority to breach its own promises and treaties. What? Only Congress can divest a reservation of its land and diminish its boundaries. So it's no matter how many promises to a tribe the federal government has already broken. If Congress wishes to break the promise of a reservation, it must say so. History shows that Congress knows how to withdraw a reservation when it can muster the will. Wow. Disestablishment has never required any particular form of words, but it does require that Congress clearly express the intent to do so. And so basically what the Supreme Court says is because the state doesn't have the right to do it and the courts don't have a right to do that, only Congress can do it. And Congress hadn't done that. Therefore, it's still a reservation. But he's very clearly saying to the state of Oklahoma, if you want the eastern half of your state to not be a reservation, you need to appeal to Congress. Because they have the right to break treaties mm -hmm. and there'll be no one holding them accountable. Now, right. here's the other side of this, right? Most people think treaties are Indian issues, right? Mm. So when you have a treaty, right, was, is, I think it was the Creek Nation who, who had this treaty with, with um, for Tulsa, for a reservation there, and they joined, the, they joined the lawsuit with McGirt. Now, I forget where they came from. Right? It was North Carolina, Georgia, somewhere on the East Coast. So if the treaty states, if you leave your lands in the East and, a, and live on these reservation lands in the West, right, this is the treaty, right? So if Congress breaks the treaty, yes, it disestablishes the reservation, but what does it mean for the lands on the East? Technically, they would lose jurisdiction over them, right? The government would? Yeah. If the treaty oh. says, if you move from this land, we'll give you lands over here. Okay. And they break the treaty and say, right. we're not going to let you have these lands over here then legally, technically, that removes the government's jurisdiction over the lands over here. They get the first lands back. Yes. 
Right. Technically. Wouldn't I mean, wouldn't that make sense to you? <laughs> well, it would, but but we know that's not what's going to happen. Though. Well, again, this is this is so not only does it does it state that Congress has the right to break a treaty and no one will hold them accountable whenever they choose. But we have this mentality that says we can break a treaty and we can keep our side of, the, mm. of, of what we got, but take yeah. away what right. you were given. We'll hold you accountable we, for maintaining what we want you to maintain. Not only do we do this to Native nations, we did it to Iran. Right. Right. It's not the only time we we've do. done it. We've done this many, many times. And this, yeah. this is where I point out, this is okay. the doctrine of discovery. Okay. So let's go, right. let's go back for a second because we've said the doctrine of discovery several times. I don't think people know what it means. Let's, let's kind of go back to square one. Start us off from there, what that means and its implications, so we can kind of go forward with this conversation. So the doctrine of discovery, it's a series of papal bulls, edicts of the Catholic Church. From the Pope, okay. Written between 1452 and 1493. Hmm. It says things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, mm. whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, mm. those people are not human and the land is yours to take. Hence so discovery. This, you can discover land. This is the doctrine that the European nations go into Africa, right. colonize the continent and enslave the people because they didn't see them as human. Right? When you have a, a religious mandate to love everybody, mm-hmm. right? How do you get around that mandate while well, you dehumanize the people you right. don't want to love? And so this is what it does. And so this is the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world, which was already inhabited by millions mm-hmm. and claimed to have discovered it. Right. You can't discover land already inhabited unless your worldview tells you the people there aren't human. Right. There are only animals on this land. Therefore, I discovered it. And so this doctrine is what gets embedded into the foundations of our nation. So in 1763, King George draws a line down the Appalachian Mountains and says to the colonies that are here, the 13 colonies, that they no longer have the right of discovery of the empty Indian lands west of Appalachia. That right of discovery now belongs solely to the crown. Hmm. So the, the colonies don't like that. These colonies in the south, the 13 colonies here don't like it. The colonies in the north in Canada, they accept that. But the colonies in the south don't. So a few years later, they write a letter of protest. And in their letter, they state that he has raised the conditions of new appropriations of land. And they go on to write that he has um, increased domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages. Mm -hmm. They signed their letter on July 4th, 1776. This Mm. is the Declaration of Independence. So 30 lines below the statement, all men are created equal, the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. Mm. So very clearly, the only reason the founding fathers used the inclusive term to start their declaration of all men is because they had a very narrow definition of who was actually human. Mm -hmm. Constitution is the same way, starts with we the people, Article 1, Section 2 never mentions women. In fact, if you read the entire constitution, there's 51 gender-specific male pronouns. It never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, and counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. So that literally leaves white men in 1787. And 
it was white landowning men who could vote. Right. So again, the constitution has the exact same problem as this, as the Declaration of Independence. And then we have the Supreme Court. I already talked about the 2020 case, but in 1823, we have two white men of European descent, Johnson versus McIntosh. They're litigating over a single piece of land. One of them got the land from a native tribe. The other one got the same land from the government. At least they said it was the same land and they want to know who owned it. So the John Marshall court, right? This is John Marshall's era. They had to decide the principle for land titles. Mm. Who had the right to sell the land, the, the native nation or the government? And they rule that, so they, the, the legal precedent for land titles, they rule is that discovery gives mm. title to the land. And then in referencing the doctrine of discovery, they state that even though natives were here first, but, but because we're savages, we're merely occupants of the land. Well, Europeans have the right of discovery to the land. So therefore they have the fee title to it. So therefore they are the true title holders. So that case in 1823 creates the legal precedent for land titles. Yep. And I, the TEDx talk I mentioned earlier, I gave a TEDx talk in 2018. It's called We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History. Mm-hmm. And it goes through not only that 1823 case, there was another case, well, there were actually three other cases in 1954, 1985, and another one in 2005 that all three specifically reference the doctrine of discovery and use the precedent from 1823 mm. to basically write opinions that natives don't have rights to their lands. Mm. And so I go through that case, the 2005 case, I actually demonstrate, I don't have time here, mm-hmm. I demonstrate how it's probably one of the most white supremacist opinions mm. written in my lifetime using the very same logic that John Marshall used in 1823. And the opinion in 2005 was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy. Uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, and now there's so many things I want to talk to you about. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you said earlier was that when you begin to tell the stories, tell the narrative, that people just can't handle it. It's too much. And you, you found that disconnect. How do I tell them what happened? How do I tell the stories? And how do I get them to continue to listen? Is that fair of what you were thinking of earlier? Yes. It was, okay. how, how do I have an honest conversation about this without right. softening it right. and without losing my audience? But if we start with understanding of what we just laid the foundation for now, that ultimately the people who came in, the Americans, Europeans, colonialists, and had an attitude of these people are less than human, they're savages, and things, and on and on and on and on, three-fifths of a person if they're, Af- if they're people of African descent, then we shouldn't be surprised at what the stories that you're about to tell, because that's what we do. That's what people do to savages, especially when you, imp- when you impose economic factors on it, when you impose power behind it, 
when you impose land and freedom, when you, when you put all those things into the mix in the hands of one group, and then that one group says, and they're savages, then they're going to brutalize these people. I mean, this is, this is world history. Yeah. So can you, and I know we don't have too much time and I'm not sure how much you want to go into, but give us an understanding a little bit more specifically of some of the ways in which the Native Americans were, were brutalized and were treated not just the breaking of trees, things of that nature, and obviously taking off good lands, put on bad lands. Okay, but more specific than that even. Yeah, if you don't mind. I mean, there's so many places where we could talk about this and there's right. several chapters in our book. Two right. of the most challenging chapters for people to read of On Selling Truth are chapters nine and 10. Right. Um, nine and 10 work to deconstruct our nation's mythological legacy of Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. So the narrative that we've created around Abraham Lincoln is that he redeemed our country mm-hmm. from a country of enslavement into a country of equality, Right. that he believed in the value of black lives and that he, you know, he was fighting for equality in our nation. And that's a complete myth. Right. Right. And when you look at his writings, and I won't go into all the detail here, mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln was a blatant and unapologetic white supremacist. Yeah, I mean, I've seen enough, just not, alone, just not in your book only, but everywhere else to say, yeah. And even when you look at his yeah. entrance into public politics, which was in 1858 when he ran for the Senate in Illinois, in 1857 was the Dred Scott decision. Mm. This was the opinion of the court that basically stated people of color were not entitled to protection from our founding documents. This is the Dred Scott decision. That was the political debate of the day, just like Roe versus Wade is one of the political debates of our generation. Dred Scott was the political debate of the day. And if you read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, there are multiple occasions where Abraham Lincoln is asked our response directly to questions about, does he believe our founding documents apply to black people? Mm-hmm. And he clearly states he doesn't. Right. He is very clearly taking a side on Dred Scott when he introduces himself to the nation and that he agrees with it and does not believe and has no intention of allowing our founding documents to protect people of color. So you just have, we have to get that clear. And this is right. This is why his legacy, which is the 13th amendment, doesn't actually abolish slavery. The clause in the amendment keeps it legal in the prison system. Right. And so, yes, he was against chattel slavery, but he no, in no way believed in the equality of black people and wasn't Mm -hmm. sure what to do with black people once they were not enslaved. And so he kept it legal within the prison system Mm -hmm. so that on a whim, any officer, any judge, any jury could incarcerate a person of color, remove their civil rights and not have them a part of mainstream society anymore. So first we have to get rid of that myth that he, he actually cared about black people or cared about equality. He didn't. But in 1862, he signed two bills. He signed the Pacific Railway Act and he signed the Homestead Act, which were the acts, the, the Homestead Act allocated 160 acres to any family willing to move west and homestead for five years. And the Pacific Railway Act allocated the land and the resources to complete the Transcontinental Railway. In the middle of the 1800s, 
the nation was working very hard to complete what it termed its manifest destiny. Right. It's belief that it not only was a God, was it a God established a nation, but it had the God given right to rule this continent from sea to shining sea. And it was very clearly, if you look at our history of the 19th century, as we were expanding westward, adding 30 some plus states to the union, right? We were literally going across and ethnically cleansing this continent to make room for white settlement and for states and everything else to be established. In fact, it was so bad in 1851, Peter Burnett, who was the first governor of California and California, bypass being a territory jumped directly to statehood after the gold rush of 1849 mm -hmm. and it became a state and peter burnett the first governor of the state in his state of the state address in 1851 he said that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the indian race becomes extinct must be expected wow while we cannot anticipate this result but with painful regret the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or the wisdom of man to avert He's not saying disease has spread and we can't stop it. He's not saying famines right. broke out. We can't feed them. He's literally saying we can't stop killing these people right. until we completely destroy them. And so this notion of manifest destiny, this notion of promised lands. Yep. Again, once we start talking about promised lands, if you read the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua, yeah, yeah, clearly. When God gives you promised lands, that comes with a mandate to ethnically cleanse and commit genocide on those lands. Yep. So this is literally what our nation's doing in the 19th century as it's right. completing its manifest destiny. And so two and a half years after signing the Pacific Railway Act and the Homestead Act, after the removal of the Winnebago and the Dakota from Minnesota and the hanging of the Dakota 38, nullifying all the treaties in those states and removing the people after the Bear River Massacre of the Shoshone in Northern Utah and Southern Idaho, after the Sand Creek Massacre of the Cheyenne and Arapaho in Eastern Colorado, and after the long walk and the removal of the Navajo and the Mescalero Apache from the territories of New Mexico and Arizona. Abraham Lincoln has literally ethnically cleansed the Northern, the Central and the Southern routes of the Transcontinental Railway making him one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. Wow. When we introduce that in chapter nine, one of the statements that we make because of the truth that history is written by the victors. Yep. And because the United States of America has never lost a war that matters, we've never given up large tracts of land. We've never been disarmed. We've never had a regime change, right? We've never lost a war that matters. We've never borne the scorn of the global community. Mm -hmm. We've written our own history for mm -hmm. 250 years. So if we imagine that Nazi Germany wins World War II, right? Just imagine Nazi right, Germany right, World right, II. Right. How would their history books record Adolf Hitler? Right. He'd be their greatest fear ever, right? Yeah. How would their history books record the Holocaust? Well, we have Holocaust deniers today. Imagine if they won the war. Right. There was no Holocaust. We didn't. There was no Holocaust. This but is the exact yeah. same thing we did with Abraham Lincoln. 
we took a blatantly unapologetic white supremacist who publicly agreed with Dred Scott and even hung in the Lincoln Memorial one of his quotes that says, my, my primary object in this struggle is not to save or destroy slavery, it's to preserve the union. Mm. And if I could preserve the union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. Right. If I could preserve by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could preserve by freeing some and leaving others alone, I'd also do that. Clearly stating Abraham Lincoln had absolutely no regard for black lives. And we hang that in his temple here on the National Mall. Mm-hmm. Right? We've done the exact same thing to Abraham Lincoln. Just like Nazi Germany would have done to Adolf Hitler hmm. had they won their war. And let me stop you for a second because... That is a very provocative statement, an incredibly uh, provocative assertion that I think people would just, they would just go, they would recoil. Most listeners are going to go, no, there's no way, no way, no way, no way. But yeah, but you're saying, yeah, exactly. Number one, you're holding up the book, uh, those of you who are listening to the podcast. The reality is we know what Lincoln was like and what he did and what he said. I mean, it's just documented. This this is not a question. I think what people would, would... have a difficulty with it to say, well, we would never have done that to Hitler. And it's like, your point is not understood as soon as someone says that, because your point is like, you can't, to equate Hitler and Lincoln is fair because of what Lincoln did. And if we did it to Lincoln, then there's no reason to say that, why wouldn't Germany not have done it to Hitler? So I think that's a fair point. Let me read the quote Abraham Lincoln used to introduce himself in 1858 during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I will say then that I am not, yeah. nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. Yeah. That I am not, never have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality, and in as much as they cannot so live while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Yeah. All right. So there's so much more I want to talk to you about. And I thank you so much for your time as it is already. And I want to, I want to acknowledge your time here. But let me, if we can go one or two more directions. One is the church's complicity in this. The, the reality is, and this is a podcast I can do later on, but you know, my background is eschatology and biblical theology. And a lot, John Winthrop and many of the, many of the founding fathers, even these great heroes of the uh, colonial enterprise, justified all that you're talking about because America was the, was the promised land, as you kind of alluded to already. America is the promised land, and that means the Indians are the Canaanites. And we have the same responsibility to wipe out the Canaanites as, as the ancient Israelites did. So let's just talk about because the, the question is like, okay, this is, what do we do with this? But I think we first need to stop and say, hey, we played a part in this. Yeah. And again, to say that we didn't play a part in this is to be so uh, individualistic. It's to fail to recognize the fact that the church is a corporate entity yeah. and we are one. And so, so help us wrestle with that for just a few minutes here. The church's complicity in this and what does that mean for us? So the first thing we have to do to really wrestle with that is we have to get past the belief that this is a, a partisan problem, right? That's become the debate in the past even few years as well. It's, it's the ultra conservative or it's the ultra liberal and this is a partisan problem. And if we could just deal with those one of those two extremes, mm. everything would be fine. So many of these values 
are bipartisan values held by the left and the right, the conservative mm -hmm. and the progressive. They're American values. They're American Christian values. And we don't know how to acknowledge that. Two of the other most important chapters in the book on Selling Truths are chapters three and four, which go through the history of the church and help us understand how the church got from the teachings of Jesus who said things like love your enemies and right. pray for those who persecute you, how we got from that to a doctrine of discovery that said, kill people right. who don't look like, act like, think like, or worship like you. Now I want to jump to modern day. Cause I just, I want people to understand because if, if we think this is just the problem of those people, right. we're never going to address it. Right. We're never going to think it's, it's severe enough to fix it. Let's go back to 2020. And we've had the lynching of George Floyd. We've had other racial motivated shootings in our country. And there's really an uproar. And there's a lot of racial protests. And one of those protests is taking place in front of the White House. And on the morning of June 1st, the law enforcement aggressively clears the park of people who are protesting violence against people of color hmm. in front of the White House. Law enforcement aggressively clears that park and Donald Trump, President Trump, walks out of the White House, across the park, stands in front of St. John's Church, holds up his Bible, holds up his Bible and takes a picture, right? Absolutely, this was a dog whistle to white Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. This was his saying to white evangelicals across the country, I'm your president, I believe in the Bible, and we're going to get rid of the, these, these racially motivated, these, these protesters who are people of color, and we're going to, it was a dog whistle to white Christian nationalism. And Donald Trump rightfully got called out for it. I mean, he, he did get called out for it. That's yeah. very true. Now, in 2021, in August, late August of 2021, there was a terrorist attack on the international airport in Afghanistan and several U S service members were killed right. in that terrorist attack. And in response to that attack, president Biden made a statement. And this is what he said. First, he said this, he said to those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this, we will not forgive. We will not forget we will hunt you down and make you pay. I will defend our interests and our people with every measure at my command. Now, we just have to, first of all, notice the language of that paragraph, because mm -hmm. Donald Trump got called out repeatedly for talking about his big red button and how right. eager he was to press it and all these things. And we see when Joe Biden gets into a corner, he uses the exact same language. Right. We won't forgive. We won't forget. We're going to hunt you down. I will defend our interests with every measure at my command. What does that include? Nuclear weapons. Okay, mm -hmm. so we just have to notice the rhetoric is almost exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Then he goes on in his speech and he thanks some of the generals and the leadership in Afghanistan for helping to, to deal with this crisis. And then, well, let me step out of this for a moment. If you listen to President Biden's State of the Union earlier this year, he used the word sacred twice. He talked about the Capitol as sacred ground. Mm -hmm. And he talked about our, our sacred duty to provide for our military veterans. 
right? Our veterans, he was highlighting, are not being treated well in dealing with the effects of war. And he talked about, he didn't talk about our moral obligation or our, our national obligation. He talked about our sacred obligation, which brings in an aspect of the divine. So why would he see caring for veterans as a divine obligation? Well, in his speech in Afghanistan in 1821 regarding the terrorist attack there, this is what he said. He said, those who have served through the ages have drawn inspiration from the book of Isaiah when the Lord says, whom shall I send and who shall go for me? And the American military has been mm -hmm. answering for a long time, here am I, Lord, send me. Mm. Here I am, send me. So Joe Biden believes that the United States military is the army of the Lord responding to a prophetic call on par with that of Isaiah the prophet. Wow. And no one said a word. Right. That's blasphemous, I, by the way. I just in case want to make sure everyone understands. Absolutely. That's the epitome of blasphemy right this is This is, and so the, to, to say white Christian nationalism is a partisan problem right. is laughable. Right. You could even argue that Joe Biden has a more educated <laughs> understanding of his white Christian nationalism than Donald Trump does. I would argue Donald Trump's understanding comes out of ignorance and out of a desire to be liked. Yeah, Joe power. Biden's actually yeah. thought through these things. Right. And so this is where we have to say we have presidents from both sides. Yeah. Right. We have Ruth Bader Ginsburg writing one of the most white supremacist Supreme Court opinions in my lifetime, mm. referencing the doctrine of discovery and stating natives have no claim to their lands in 2005. Right. Clearly, white supremacy is a bipartisan value. We have to acknowledge that these things we're dealing with are not the problem of our opponents politically or even religiously these are american problems mm -hmm. and americans believe this about ourselves and this is what we need to address and the church has to start this is something i've been trumpeting for a long time we not identifying itself with the state we have to get back and go we are the church and we are not the state, whatever state you might be in. We are the church. And we'll be discussing this more on, on our next podcast with a professor from Duke University. So I'd like to read you something that I wrote. Okay, please. This was a few months ago, I, or a few years ago. Sorry, I wrote this. I wrote this in 2018. I do some consulting with um, the, the Worship Institute at Calvin University in Calvin Seminary. Hmm. John Whitley um, and I have been kind of, I've been, uh, working with the Worship Institute for a number of years, helping them, especially with their dialogues on race and, and things like that. And uh, in 2018, when our nation was in the midst of this immigration crisis, right, we had kids in cages, we were ripping mm -hmm. families apart at our borders. And the Worship Institute was wrestling with um, some of these social issues, but they're also looking very closely at the Proverbs. And John asked me to write something about some of my prophetic call but in the form of a proverb. And so I, I wrote this and I'll just read it for you. Wise is the church 
that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. Remember, my brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. When the church merely lobbies one political leader and protests the other, when for the sake of argument or political gain, the body of Christ turns a blind eye to one sin and magnifies another, we are not representing the headship of our body, who is Christ. As vile, repulsive, and urgent is the Trump administration's separation of families at our border, it's not the first time. Indian removal, the slave trade, boarding schools, lynchings, Japanese internment camps, mass incarceration, even the deportation numbers of the Obama administration. The list of ways the U.S. government has worked to destroy the family structure of people of color throughout our history is as long as it is depressing. So let's stop pretending that President Trump is the God-ordained savior or the ultimate demise of our union. The same with President Obama or President Biden. What our nation needs is not for Democrats to be better Democrats, nor do we need Republicans to simply be better Republicans. We don't even need our nation to be more Christian. My brothers and sisters, the United States of America is not, never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. And wise is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. I agree with Kenneth Kaunda, the former president of Zambia, who said, what a nation needs more than anything else is not a Christian ruler in the palace, but a Christian prophet within earshot. Yeah. All right, let me finish up if I can, if you don't mind giving a few more minutes here, please. And thank you so much. So you made the statement earlier, what does it look like today to say thanks? And I wanna ask that question and maybe even a second question if I may, and that is, are reparations appropriate and what do they look like? And, and if I had a third question too, what can the average person do? I, what, what, what are you calling me to do? What are you calling the average listener to do as, a, as an individual Christian who's being convicted of these things? So kind of a, a hodgepodge of, of different questions there. There's so many different ways yeah. we, can, we need to discuss this. The first question you said was what? Can you what does it that? look like to say thanks? The beginnings of the way to say thank you is the building of real relationships. Mm. That's the first step. Okay. Learn whose land you're living on, whether they were ethnically cleansed or wiped off the face of the earth. Learn whose land you're living on. Learn what treaties were broken so that you could continue living on that land. Mm. And begin to both learn the history of the land as well as build relationship with the people from that land. Not with an agenda, not with a penance, mm -hmm. but with just a desire to build a real and sincere relationship. That's the first step. Okay. The second step is there needs to be a question about what do we do next? But I would argue the nation isn't yet ready to answer that question or to ask that question. One of the things, my, my co-author, Sung Chan Ra, before the book we wrote together on Selling Truth, he wrote another book called A Prophetic Lament. And it's, it's no mistake that he and I wrote 
on selling truth together because one of the things we point to for the church is to lament its complicity in this history. Mm-hmm. Lament is not a repentance. Lament's not even asking for forgiveness. Lament is sitting in the brokenness mm-hmm. and allowing the depth of the brokenness to it possibly even overwhelm you. Mm-hmm. Singchan brilliantly points out in his book how anemic the church is at lament. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I tell people it's almost impossible to lament when you believe in the myth of your own exceptionalism. There's no mm-hmm. space to lament there. And so the, the, the church needs to sit in a season of lament for longer than it feels comfortable mm-hmm. until creator shows up and allow creator to point in the direction of what steps need to be made next. Okay. And the third is, and I, I, I've been speaking about this a lot more recently, right? There's a lot of questions about reparations and about how do we begin to to restore what was broken. One of the things I'm adamant about is that, and this was when I ran for president, this was one of the key planks of my platform, which is the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. Mm -hmm. A conversation I would put on par with the truth and the reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, Rwanda, and Canada. Mm -hmm. But I would not call ours truth and reconciliation because Reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony, which isn't accurate. Mm, mm-hmm. Our relationships here on Turtle Island with Europeans began in brokenness. Mm-hmm. And so we don't need truth and reconciliation. We need truth and conciliation. Mm. Conciliation is just the mediation of a dispute. So let, let's start this dialogue in honesty. Mm-hmm. There's no harmony we're trying to restore here. We're trying to build something for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And I'm convinced we need it sooner rather than later. Now, there is a lot of people wrestling with, well, what do we do? And this is where I really have to help people understand the depth of the problem here. Actually, I, on my own social media, I did a, I, I interview people. I have what's called my second cup of coffee on my YouTube channel, my Facebook page. And I had Jamar Tisby on mm. my on my show a few months ago, and Jamar, a brilliant author, I love mm. the way he thinks and the way he he articulates the stuff about race and racism. And we had a a wonderful discussion. And at the end of the the show, he was asking me some questions about some of my work, and I was trying to help him understand the depth of the problem. And I was, I was telling him about, this was years ago, I was invited to speak at a conference um, at, at a, a small church in Atlanta, Georgia. It was primarily African-Americans or people of color attending this conference. And I was the last presenter of the conference talking about the doctrine of discovery. The afternoon before I spoke, they took us on a tour of the neighborhood. So this was a, a local neighborhood, kind of a blighted community. And they brought us to a school that had been burned down. And because the school burnt down, the kids were being bused all over the city. And so they asked us to pray that the school could be rebuilt so they could educate their youth in their own community. They also took us to a community center that was being built. And they asked us to pray that people could, leaders could be developed within that community who could serve that community. 
Um, they asked us to pray for that. And then they took us to an abandoned house. Probably half of the houses in that neighborhood were abandoned. And the other half were rental units. And they asked us to pray that more of the renters in that neighborhood could buy their own houses. Right. This is how you do community development. Right. If you mm -hmm. have owner occupied housing without displacing people, you're going to improve the quality of the neighborhood. I'm not talking about gentrification, but this mm -hmm. is community development. And so they asked us to pray for that. We then went back to the church and they I spoke on the doctrine of discovery, including how the doctrine of discovery is used by the Supreme Court in 1823. 1954, 1985, and 2005 as the legal precedent for land titles. They asked us to leave the conference with a question to kind of ponder out of our talk. And so after I laid out that legal precedent for land titles with the Dr. Discovery, I said to them, I said, you took me on a tour earlier today and we visited this church and this community center and we visited this house. And you asked us to pray that more people in this neighborhood could become homeowners. And now I've just taught you that land titles are based on the legal understanding that natives are savages and don't have title to the land. I said, I'm curious how that makes you feel. And the people said, well, we don't have access to loans. We don't have good jobs here. I said, no, that's not the question. We prayed for divine intervention. You asked God to help you buy your homes. And I'm pointing out to you that home ownership is based on the legal understanding that natives aren't human. I'm just asking how you feel about that. And the people just kind of stared at me. And I said, this is the problem. We don't know what justice looks like when everything we have is stolen. Yeah. Let's sit on that one for a little while. Mark, we might need to have you back again just to process again a second time, but I thank you so much for what you've done. I want to put a lot of the links. Um, I'll get them from you later on for your book, obviously in the show notes and your yeah. website and your blogs and everything else there as well. And um, we need to lament. I totally agree. I realized that for me a couple months ago, I thought as I was working on some different issues of justice, I thought, you know, it's really, I'm just one of these analytical kind of persons, a maximizer, a doer, achiever, Okay, okay, I got that. Oh, I just need to apologize and figure out what the, what the way to move forward is now. And I realized that mentality, it kind of like didn't allow me to grieve. It didn't allow me to, to no. sit with what was, what's wrong. And just because when you sit with what's wrong and when you lament that, it, it, changed, it changes you. And you don't want to just, okay, let's, let's find a resolution now. It's like, no, there's pain here. And um, yeah, we need to sit with this. So I just yeah. thank you for your work. I thank you for your word. I thank you for taking the time to be with us and our listeners. And um, thank you for letting us be on your land um, and uh, help us, if you will, as we continue to, to first to lament and then to figure out what do we do next. Yeah. 
So thank you so it's much. It's been an honor to be with you. Thanks for giving me a chance to share some of these things. And yeah, if people want to get, I actually sell signed copies of the book on my website at wirelesshogan.com. Okay. I'll make sure I give you the link for that too. So excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.